From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. Dr. Larry Stoll is the principal and founder of Pace Turf, an internationally recognized leader in research, education, information, extension, and agronomic services in support of the turfgrass management community based in Southern California. Larry, in partnership with Dr. Wendy Gelertner, have pioneered the idea of data-driven turf management, from the use of the growth potential to MLSN with Dr. Michael Woods. Larry has been at the forefront of progressive data-driven management and promoting the metrics of sustainability for my entire career. Before we get to my conversation with Larry, and many parts of the country, especially in the Southwest U.S., golf is in its busy season. Overseeded turf under cloudy, wet conditions is ripe for disease pressure and weak under traffic. Civitas Turf Defense from Intelligro has been shown to provide effective protection against many foliar pathogens and sustains leaves longer on the plant, and that increases traffic stress. Learn more about Civitas Turf Defense, available from a variety of distributors throughout the U.S. and Canada, in pre-mixed and ready-to-mix formulations, or visit CivitasTurfDefense.com. Are you a native Arizonan? No, I was born in California, but my father works for the Department of Agriculture in California, and he uh, managed an inspection station at the Arizona border. Uh. So we lived in Yuma, Arizona for a good portion of my formative years. So what did Dad do for the USDA? No, he worked for the California Department of Agriculture. Oh, he was California. A, he managed detection and exclusion because California's got the barriers to the south and the east and the north to protect agriculture. In the past, they used to inspect vehicles coming into the state for produce coming from areas that might be a problem. You know, like they didn't want any gypsy moth from the east coast getting into the state or things like that. So he, he ran that inspection station in Winter Haven, California. So you grew up in a house where agriculture was part of what you grew up with, right? Yeah. You know, I remember helping my dad study for his exams for promotions, you know, within the Department of Agriculture. And he went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo uh, before World War II, and he uh, he didn't finish because he enlisted, but he wanted to be an egg. So you go to Arizona, and you don't leave for, what, 10 years? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, well, we were there. Well, it was longer than that. It was uh, <laughs> through the 70s. Yeah, I was there for a long time. Yeah. They basically had to throw me out of the department when I, when I, after I got finished up my PhD because I liked it there so much Good. in Tucson. So is that where you met Wendy or did you meet her at Mycogen? Met her at Mycogen. Yeah, she had just wrapped up her degree at UC Riverside. They recruited her. I had to scrape to get into that job I got at Mycogen. <laughs> so what I'm trying to get to here is in some ways I couldn't tell early on if you wanted to be a breeder or a pathologist or what were your interests when you embarked upon what wound up to be a career in somewhat turf management and turf science? It's not the way it started out. Yeah, no, it, uh, I bounced around a few different majors to begin with and then found uh, microbiology and then I got a job in the plant pathology department from a professor there actually who just passed away, Ed Nye. He hooked me up with doing work in the summer on uh, fusarium diseases of asparagus believe it or not. And uh, I just love plant pathology. So I just pursued that and I got a teaching assistant in the job in the department Okay, and worked with some just really great guys there. Mike Stanklini, that name might, might be familiar. I'm not sure. With well, you. I know one name that's familiar. You either were pals with Keith Waldron, my pal Jennifer Grant's husband. Where did you guys meet? Well, that was, I think, a mutual connection when I did a postdoc at UC Davis. And then uh, Keith was, uh, gosh, I was hanging around with Brian Delp who just retired from Syngenta. Yeah. And we just had a friendship develop after that. We had a few parties here and had a good time. So Played some music? Yeah, played some music, had some pizza. 
<laughs> All right. So as a former weed scientist, Larry, I'm really interested in your work in the mycoherbicide area and more interested in what you were working on and why it's proved to really not be something we see in the main. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. Mycoherbicides kicked off a long time ago with control of joint vetch out of the University of Arkansas. And more developments came about, and Mycogen picked up a technology out of Louisiana by uh, Harold Walker, and they patented Alternaria cassia for control of sickle pod in soybeans. And it looked pretty good. I mean, there were tests that were carried out around the country where soybeans are grown, and they had formulations that were made on granules. You could spray it on, and it looked like it worked really well. It was selective. Yes, yes, selective pickle pot. So mm-hmm. it doesn't hurt uh, soybeans at all. So our job was to figure out how to manufacture the product and work marketing and figure out how to get it out there. Well, it turns out, you know, that sickle pod, like many weeds, they're variable. So you don't have a uniform genetics out there, but all of the tests that were done through all the various research locations used a single seed lot of sickle pod. Hmm. So we're talking about the testing for efficacy was done on a uniform a genetic base. Okay, yeah. so that's one area that was a problem. It didn't get out into the real field situations until we got our hands on it. And the other problem was that they used scarified seed, uh-huh. and sickle pod has a hard seed coat. So everybody did these trials, and all the seeds germinated uniformly. And with sickle pod, it's got two big cotyledons at the bottom. And if you get spores on those cotyledons on the top of those spores, they fold up at night, and the fungus will attack the crown of the plant and just completely kill the plant. Hmm. So that works good. The only problem with that is that... You can't go out and scarify the seeds. Yeah, right. So you don't get uniform germination in the field. And and also, in some cases, the granulars worked okay, which is one of the keys. You couldn't, as a result of production, because this thing made one of the biggest spores possible, about 160 microns long, and you can't really get it to sporulate in fermentation. So producing spores was a problem. So the alternative is to go to a granule that then you put on the ground, it gets wet by rainfall, and it sporulates on the top, and then rain-driven particles splash up on the bottom sides of the cotyledons. And what happened in that case is it ruins the ability of the cotyledon to close. So the cotyledons get stuck open. So with the granular formulations, you could knock the cotyledons off, but you couldn't control the rest of the plant. So the only way you could control pod was if you got the crown. Just as it's starting to develop, you get spores on the top of the cotyledons, they close up, it kills the crown, and then the plant's dead. Otherwise, if you just knock the cotyledons off, fungus wasn't strong enough to take the whole plant down. Plus, it has a green stem. So you could basically rip off half the leaves off this thing, and it still would keep going. So that one didn't work very well. And and so it sounds like the moral of the story is that, you know, you have delivery problems, you have stage of growth problems, you have environmental conditions that have to be met for it to infect and be conducive problems, uh, that's probably why herbicides are so widely used and there aren't many alternatives because it's a pretty tough road to replace something simple like 2,4-D or even pre-emergent herbicides. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, I mean, weeds and pathogens, they grew up together, so they have all kinds of ways of fighting each other, you know. So, yeah, yeah. There's just the hurdle is just too big. Nothing has advanced very far just for those reasons. It's just a massive lift 
to try to cross all those barriers and get something that's economical. I mean, you can do it if you had all the money in the world. And then, and then, of course, you know, this is what you'll see with a lot of biological products. We held a patent for use of salts of acid herbicides like the Blazon and Blazer and some of those other herbicides in combination with the fungus. You get pretty good control. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's amazing how that works, isn't it? It's amazing. Okay, so you're in a, a, a difficult area, maybe a thankless job, although you did get your wife out of the deal. So that's a pretty good, you know, what you got out of mycogen. Why did it end? And then what was the epiphany to start Pace? Oh, well, I had talked about starting a company like this for quite a while. And uh, the market assessment down here is pretty strong. There wasn't a lot of plant pathology extension in the area. So the, the market looked like it's going to be okay. I had stock options that I was able to execute that gave me startup money for the business. And I had a bad relationship with my boss at Mycogen, but it was a good time to make an exit. So, so no consideration for uh, public life like your dad or university work at all? No, no interest in being an academic? Yeah, well, those options came up every once in a while, and, and I looked at them. But Wendy was pretty well established in the, the Mycogen Corporation situation, and San Diego was a very difficult place to get to in an ag ah. sort of environment. And we used to come over here when we were kids from Yuma when it was 110. You know, you come over here and it's 75. It's pretty nice. <laughs> so I think that having an independent business allows you, that's one of the features that it allows you to live in an area where you want to live. If your geographic interest is something that's important, that's where independent practices come into uh, play to allow you to do that type of thing. So what do you make of California? You know, um, I don't know if you know, but one of my more recent episodes have been with your our pal Mark Mahatty up north in California. And, you know, I liken you guys basically for filling in where a really important state for turf grass management, uh, there really was no way the university system could, could sort of meet the demand. But, I mean, what is it with California that they've always really lacked this particular kind of support at the university level beyond a few programs? Or I know it existed at one point, right? Ken Kurtz was at Pomona and there's always been a turf person at SLO. And, of course, you had Ollie up north and Madison up north and then Youngner and the two Vicks down in the south. There's always been room for you guys in the private sector. Is it because it's so big and the university just really never did it well? Or what was it about California that made it so good for you guys to be there? A couple of factors. It goes back to primarily, I think, funding and uh, cutbacks and extension, research and extension on, in ag in general. And I think after, you know, Younger and Jabot went, there was just not the money to be utilized. And I think you see that around the country also. And you have areas that have a strong industry support, like New Jersey, North Carolina, those sort of areas that have that kind of support are, will do okay. And for some reason in California, the industry, they've tried to get a marketing order, which would allow them to get a few cents on a round of golf. But the politics just don't work out. The golfers just really don't want to have anything to do with supporting the turf grass industry as a whole. So it's, it's mainly funding. And that's where the opportunity comes up for people like Mahatty and, and ourselves down here. And uh, that's always been a good feature of the market for an independent consultant. But it's really a horrible thing for the industry as a whole, because, I mean, you just see the same mistakes being made all of the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, as I look at the development of your company over time, and of course, I'm old enough to remember when you began to start and then in the early 90s, when the Internet was there, you were you guys were one of the first ones to put any kind of numbers to anything. I'm wondering how in your background, you know, you wanted to start a business 
But you conceptualized it around having data to make decisions when it really wasn't in the main for what a lot of superintendents and the industry were doing. But I always thought the cornerstone of your work was the way you helped the people that were your clients make really informed decisions using data. That couldn't have been so easy to get people to catch on to early on. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like back in the late 80s, early 90s? Yeah, well, it was a, you know, nothing happens on its own. And uh, we were fortunate enough to hook up with Steve Davis, Bill Blackman, and Fred Eckert. They all worked for Target Specialty Products. And we developed a program in, with a distribution network that was called Soil Works. And that composed of soil, water, tissue testing, and diagnostic services provided by Pace Turf, and regulatory education and compliance provided by specialty products. You weren't obligated to buy any products, but those are the types of services that you would get. And they were able to pick the clients that were reliable, you know, interested, high-end, serious people who wanted to know how to better manage turf. So we just set up sort of like an extension service type of a program. And then that evolved. We split out our services shortly after. And the reason we got into numbers, I mean, I'm, I'm a plant pathologist. I love plant diseases. That's really where my focus is. Yeah. But I go out in the field, and then what do you find out? That like 95% of the problems have to do with salinity, drainage, uh, compaction, yeah. traffic, you know, cultural practices, and just site characteristics that are way beyond plant pathology. And if you're just identifying diseases, you aren't going to solve the problem. If you're going to be a plant pathologist and solve turf problems, you have to know about soils. You have to know about managing salt and water out here where we irrigate a lot. And one of the first things we developed was a use of a salinity meter. And actually, that came out of an old major professor of mine in Arizona, uh, Mike McClure, who one day sent me a picture of a salinity meter that had two probes sticking out the end. It was mainly for water salinity. So we just took that and did some research and figured out how we could subvert the numbers from that direct measurement to a saturated paste equivalent, which is the number that all the breeding work is done on. And that was, I think, our first turf publication was on how to use this direct uh, measurement. So that started addressing the salinity problems. They could monitor the salinity. They could leach when the salinity gets too high with a reasonably priced uh, tool. And then at the GCSA meetings, I went to uh, Mike Thoreau and I said, hey, Mike, this thing really works. Here's how it works. And he developed that new probe that you just directly stick it into the soil. Yeah, the Turf Scout yeah. from Spectrum. That was the first thing yeah. that really was a, a big launch as far as solving turf management problems here. That was probably one of the best contributions uh, we had to the industry. Well, it's hard to know what's the best one. That was the first one, maybe. But what I want to ask you about, it seems interesting to me, Larry, when I think about using data... I think a lot of times when I'm monitoring things, maybe I'm less likely to use a product because I'm confident that, yeah, the conditions are not right for it. I have this data that informs my decision. So oftentimes, maybe data-driven people might be more resource efficient. You'd want the whole water, fertilizer, pesticides, things like that. But you got into business right away with a supply company. Did that create any conflicts when people would make decisions and then not buy things? I don't think it was too bad on that end. And they actually, after we introduced MLSN, hired us to go around and give seminars around Southern California. So I think progressive companies like Target Specialty Products are fine to adapt because they want to give their clients the right information. Now, we were pretty careful not to take any money related to product sales. So we always maintained that level of independence. And we, in our web business and all the rest of the stuff is just supported by memberships and we have no advertisements. So 
So we kept our independence from that side. We're very conscious of it. And actually, we felt a little guilty going to some of the corporate-sponsored meetings in nice locations because it's sort of like, well, that's a, it's a little iffy. They're trying to influence us. And it does influence you, but you try to do the best you can and have the data to support all your decisions. So you can't make decisions without the data. And if you have the data, then that protects you a little bit. But seriously, any interaction with, with sales, you have to you have to put that computation into your brain that this is going to influence your decision. And you need to take that into consideration and make sure that you're not recommending something that's not appropriate. Well, or, you know, my favorite, since you brought up all your great work with salinity and water quality stuff, you know, it's one thing to measure it. And then it's, oh, you need JIP. Or, you know, you need this compound or you got a carbonates building up and we should inject in the water. And I would have to say that adjusting water quality has become quite the snake oil area, Larry, uh, in our careers. Uh, it certainly hasn't stopped people from putting out products that might not have any value. But I'm wondering your perspective on that. I don't want to bash, you know, that we're doing it wrong. I want to say, is it simple that it's this problem and here's how you solve it? Or do we need all these multiple solutions for a particular problem like salinity? Yeah, well, I think it's, a, it's an Occam's razor kind of a, an issue. <laughs> Larry Stoll is a co-parent of the MLSN concept that has improved fertilizer use efficiency. And when it comes to supplying those nutrients and fertilizers, you want simple, no-nonsense solutions. And that's where the Plant Food Company comes in. The professionals at the Plant Food Company strive to provide the latest technology at affordable prices and backs them with their commitment to servicing the industry and golf course superintendents. They've the research to back up their claims and the products for all your nutrient management needs. Learn more at plantfoodcompany.com. Yeah, well, I think it's a it's an Occam's razor kind of a, <laughs> an issue right. for sure. I mean, that keeps coming up. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I think it's fairly simple. And really, your soil will tell you if you have a water problem. If you do have a problem with the soil, then you got to find out if you have a drainage problem. If you don't have a drainage problem and your soils are off in some way, you're accumulating sodium or the water's not going into the soil properly. Then you start looking at water quality issues, and the main one in the runoff areas of the Sierra Nevada mountains out here is the water is too pure. Mm -hmm. So in those cases, you have to increase the salinity, and gypsum is a great way to do that. So that's why it's broadly used in the agricultural areas in the Central Valley so that water will penetrate the soil, either flood-run irrigation or uh, sprinkler. So so let's, let, let's take a minute, Larry, and, and talk a little bit about this concept of too pure and I've heard people use the term old water, that it gets brought up from... <laughs> have, you, have you heard that one? That's good. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Okay, so we'll take one at a time, but can you talk about the science behind water being too clean and why that prevents it from infiltrating properly? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, water is pretty uh, cohesive. I mean, it holds together pretty well if it's just distilled, you know, pure water. So you need some ions in there to tie up the cation in and the anion in sort of water so that it will move through a charged system like a like a soil. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if it, it turns out if the EC is less than about 0.5, and if the SAR is a little elevated, 
that's where it gets really risky. But the EC is less than 0.5, then you probably should do something. If you're having infiltration problems, if you're not, then don't do anything. <laughs> then you'll want to uh, increase the salinity of that water or put a topical application of something down to make the water move through the soil. But I don't know if just all the fertilizers we put on is going to make a difference. Plus, I mean, with the turf on top, it's a little different, but we do see some penetration problems. It's pretty clear in areas that have low salinity irrigation water that the use of gypsum injection really helps out as far as getting water into the soil. What about hard water, with high pH water, and injectors to lower the pH of that? Have you seen that to be an effective tool? Yeah, it depends on what the problem is. That's another tricky one. If the residual sodium carbonate in the water is above 1.25, then that's pretty much starts to be the trigger to consider either you can add gypsum to that type of water. It's a sodium issues that we're talking about with these high pH waters primarily. Unless if it's an ultra pure water with a high pH, who cares? Right. But if it's a it's a salt containing water high enough that it's going to tie up all the calcium and magnesium, then you're going to get a sodium deposition problem at the surface. Okay. We're mainly talking about what's going to happen in fairways. And a lot of these problems, you know, in ag where they have these serious problems with water quality is because the surface of the soil dries. Mm. And we never get a dry surface, shouldn't ever get a dry surface on a turf soil. But yeah, in those cases where you have high bicarbonates, then some sort of acid burner, acid injection type system can make the system operate better. The other thing that I found really regional in your work is your recent passion or long-term passion for kikuyu grass. It has a really narrow adaptation where you live, right? How far in off the coast do you go where it just isn't the grass you are going to have anymore? Do you see it making its way, expanding its use? Uh, I know you guys did a session a number of years ago, um, at, you know, at the National and I'm wondering where your interest in kikuyu grass and how widespread or expanding you see that population getting. Yeah, I think it's probably not as drought tolerant as Bermuda. So I think in the inland areas, it's more desirable to have Bermuda for sure, and it's easier to manage there. I was just doing some background work on the kikuyu, just checking out some of the issues. And, you know, at that session, we had uh, a woman from Kenya. Yeah, Maureen, she's working with John Kaminsky. Yeah, right. And she was delightful. And, and I just started checking out Kenya, where kikuyu grass come from. And it turns out that the environment there is pretty similar to coastal California. Mm-hmm. So that was weird. And then if you look around where really kikuyu has spread, it is sort of coastal. You can go inland a ways, oh, pretty far inland, but it's still sort of on the west side of the coastal ranges where it really does well. It, you can grow it in some other locations pretty well, too, and then some of the new varieties are maybe going to expand its distribution. And I know that Jim Baird at UCR is working on uh, improving it because it does pretty well as far as staying green longer than uh, Bermuda does, if you can get it to stay that way. But it's, uh, you know, in the areas where we, we have kikuyu grass, we have gray leaf spots, so you have a foliar disease that requires fungicide application to keep Premier Turf going during the summer. So it's an interesting grass. It's sort of the POA of warm season grasses. That's sort of the way I think Pat Gross described it that way at one time. But it's not enough known about how it operates. Well, and I can tell you that uh, Rich McIntosh and the previous superintendents, particularly Rich lately with the U.S. Open and he'll have the farmers again one more time, they can really make a wonderful playing surface out of that Kikuyu grass oh, yeah. out of the Torrey Pines. I mean, that's as good as I've ever seen it done. Yeah. No, we worked with them on the uh, 2008 opening. Kikuyu is just, I mean, it's one of those frustrating situations. I mean, it really can be beautiful, and then it can collapse from some problem if you're not watching it. It's not very deeply rooted. I think some new varieties may help. If you over-fertilize it, like if you have recycled water, which is a common factor nowadays, you get more nitrogen than you want. 
keeping the nitrogen down and keeping the stolons from growing too long. It's beautiful. When it's beautiful, it's beautiful. When it collapses, it's really rough. And, you know, just to wrap up the sort of regional sorts of problems that you've spent your career working on, the one that I find most perplexing is this rapid blight issue. And when I got to visit this past year, I got up into Northern California early in the year, and it looked like it was some distance from the coast or somewhere in the valley. What has been surmised about the dominant conditions where rapid blight is a big problem? And give us some background on it, Larry, for the folks that don't know anything about what we're talking about. What is rapid blight and a little bit about its niche and maybe how it might be expanding? Yeah, that's a good one. That's a really fun one. Rapid blight showed up in about 1995 at Santa Ana Country Club where Dave Zardi was the superintendent. And he called in a panic and uh, he said he said something on his screen. So we started looking at it and it was something that I had never seen before. So I, uh, I got some other pathologists involved. I sent samples to uh, Houston Couch. He was still going at that time. And uh, Bruce Martin, a forage pathologist up in uh, Oregon, Steve Alderman. And uh, nobody could figure out what it was. I thought it was a chytrid, which was wrong. It turned out to be a net slime mold, which is a marine pathogen of uh, eelgrass, or similar to that one. It's a little bit different. It took forever for us to identify it. Mary Olson at University of Arizona came into the project a few years later, and she took a, a micrograph of the organism and showed it to uh, Robert Gilberson at University of Arizona, who is a world-renowned mycologist. He just, he knows everything. He, he passed away, but they uh, have a herbarium named after him at University of Arizona. He looked at the photo and he says, that looks like labyrinthula. And he was like, what? <laughs> so he, from the photograph, he says, it looks like labyrinthula. You couldn't culture this thing under conventional methods. And so he, once we knew it was in the labyrinthia, Mary jumped on it at that point. You have to put horse serum in the auger to, to grow it. And, and she figured it out. So she got it to the point where you could culture it, you could cause disease. And uh, so we confirmed Coach postulates that it was labyrinthia terrestris, which is the first terrestrial pathogen in that family. So it's kind of, it was a very... Uh-huh. interesting, bizarre thing. And that was like we had a steak dinner bet on it, you know, who was going to be able to identify <laughs> it first. Just so we clear this up, this thing crawled out of aquatic environments and now it's infecting terrestrial Reviewing the 2021 growing season reveals the many weaknesses that exist on golf course putting greens regarding drainage and firmness. Thankfully, solutions such as Dryject Sand Injection Services increases infiltration and this helps alleviate poor drainage and reduces compaction by top dressing, aerating, and mending in one pass. Dryject Services keeps the water flowing through your profile and plenty of air in the root zone. Contact your local Dryject Service representative or visit dryject.com. this up. This thing crawled out of aquatic environments and now it's infecting terrestrial plants. So it's been around more than it looks. It shows it's in the UK. Uh, it was probably there and nobody just recognized what it was and you tried to culture, you couldn't culture. Okay. So it's probably, it's probably been causing some issues. It's specifically related to high salinity, high sodium conditions. So if you have POA under those conditions, it detects a lot of plants. And Bruce Martin at North Carolina was the key lead on getting some of that work done, but it'll attack a lot of plants. But if you keep the salt levels down and you keep the sodium down, uh, you're fine. you got to keep sodium below 110 parts per million, melic 3 extract, and you're pretty much not going to have a problem with the rapid blight. And no, no fungicides have been effective. Have fungicides been effective? 
Yes, insignia works for control of uh, rapid blight pretty well. This has had some promise, but there's probably just a few out there. The, the primary one, from my perspective, is insignia paraclostrobin. And the interesting thing with paraclostrobin, and <laughs> this was not completely figured out yet either, but there seems to be a relationship between potassium and sodium in this particular pathogen. And if you can keep the potassium levels out, well, you're basically keeping the sodium levels in the plant down a little bit. But we did see cases where we allowed uh, potassium levels to drop really low, below guidelines, and then uh, paraclostrobin was less effective. So I had a guy calling me that says, man, I'm spraying this stuff, you know, the max rate, and it's just not controlling the disease. And we looked at the soil reports, and we said, okay, this is probably what's happening. And he turned it down, and he got his potassium levels back up, and the product started working better. Well, I'm surprised it took us 30 minutes to get to my favorite topic, right? Everybody knows my favorite topic is potassium and and all the trouble I got (laughs) over the years challenging modern potassium recommendations. And yours would be an example, like the work at Rutgers on POA, where they found, well, you can get too low and have some problems. But let's start there, Larry, and go back to your early days with Target and Soilworks how come you did MLSN? I mean, had it always been in your head and you and Micah sat around and concocted it? How was it that you got motivated to really work on at least an alternative to interpreting modern soil tests for turf grass managers? Okay. Well, I use Brookside Labs, and I appreciate all the people that work with Brookside Labs. They're a good, they're a good group. Me too. Love Luke. Yeah. And I had a lot of data. Even by the time Mike was working with you, and I watched his first reports on potassium and low potassium levels, and I kind of got intrigued. So that started the conversation. And then I, it's been a while now since we worked on MLSN, but we we knew that there had to be a better way to look at soil levels than what we had been doing in the past. And this is not even, you know, we're discounting BCSR right off the bat. But uh, from the slant, sufficiency levels were definitely, they were just too high. Because, I mean, the examples are everywhere. You can yeah. look at many soil tests with good performing <laughs> turf with the low levels. It's not a problem. Well, my favorite was when you'd get the report back with potassium and they'd give you a recommendation for the level you had to be at of potassium. And you could literally dump a dump truck of potassium on the soil and you couldn't get to those levels that would be able to be extracted out of the sample. So you had a a willing participant over here in upstate New York. And these are the things Mike and I used to ask ourselves all the time when we would sit around and talk about just the potassium part. It was brilliant of you guys to think about it, obviously, more broadly, uh, and then tie it to growth potential. So I'm with you. And I was surprised to hear you say you started out with a product company because, you know, I think SLAN and BCSR have sold a lot of fertilizers. What say you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they will sell a lot of fertilizers. And the, the thing is, it doesn't hurt the turf. I mean, right. most of the stuff that are, that are recommended is not a problem. But sustainability, even though it's just a buzzword, I mean, we're seeing the prices of nitrogen going crazy. We're seeing the prices of phosphorus going out the roof. I mean, we've got to realistically take a, a better look at what actually needs to be applied. And that's my perspective was what the client needs. So I was always looking at the client side. I never felt pressure when we were working with the uh, company. Steve Davis was an extension person out of Tennessee before he started working for Target, and he was a true extension guy. He didn't want to sell stuff that they didn't need. So the whole framework was always uh, focused towards servicing the uh, consumer, the the client. So anymore, it's really there's just too much product going out, and we just did a lot of testing. We could not see the results. Just like you're saying, you, you can only put down so much product and not see a soil result or a turf result. 
that you kind of have to start questioning the motives of why you're recommending those products. Other, it's safe because everybody else recommends it. You're not making anything that's a little shaking the boat a little bit too much. So I'm sort of interested in some of the pushback you've gotten over the years, Larry. How much pushback have you gotten? You know, your name's attached to this thing. It's it's on your website. It's for better or for worse. It's it's I would say for better because it moved us towards a more sustainable approach. Uh, what about pushback you've gotten? Because you still have quite a few, I don't like the word disciples, but certainly that's a term you'd use for slant interpretation or or BCSR, even worse. What kind of pushback have you gotten? Well, it personally hasn't been too bad. I mean, every once in a while we'll, have, we'll hear comments in the background, but very few people want to uh, discuss it openly. And I'm not quite sure why, but it would be, you know, if they want to discuss it, we're happy to discuss it with them. Uh, we have heard of superintendents applying for jobs who have uh, been turned down because they said they supported MLSN <laughs> or that's a management practices. So it's a weird deal. It's easy enough to defend the process, and I can't find anybody that comes up with situations where you can blame MLSN for some sort of a failure. You know, there's frequently you can see problems with people not putting enough stuff on if they let it drip below. And it's still, the MLSN number's got a 10% buffer on the bottom. I mean, it's pretty solid. Yeah. But I'm sure there are, there's cases where there's a problem with some other factor involved that uh, might need to be addressed. But as far as pushback, it's not as much as you would anticipate. I mean, people don't like it. I mean, there's uh, sales reps that certainly that don't like it, and I, I don't worry too much about that because he, I don't have to sell their products for them. But they, <laughs> I'm sure it would be a little uncomfortable. Well, there's a couple of things left I want to chat with you about before we get out of here. And one is uh, this uh, really broad terms First is, you know, you've been on data-informed management for a really long time, and you certainly had people who utilized your services. One of the drumbeats I hear is, yeah, you know, you still hear it. What do I need data for? You know, I can see it with my eyes. Or, you know, I'm not going to trust some model to manage my golf course. Or I'm not going to, you know, let some soil moisture meter decide how to water. How much have you incorporated some of the obstacles that are presented sometimes by folks who, you know, are a little bit resistant to using data to improve their management, maybe because they're intimidated or maybe it feels like too much work or maybe it feels like they're losing control. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about just becoming more data driven and with advice you'd give people for starting to go down that path? Yeah, well, I think, you know, what a, that's, a, that's a good one because I think there's people that are comfortable with the data and they adopt it pretty readily. I think the people that are very uncomfortable with the data probably don't have enough time in their schedule to deal with it. And there's so much uh, data that can be generated now, way more than is needed. That Occam Brazen's uh, approach comes in here also. Yeah. Who needs to know what the soil moisture is every three feet, you know, throughout the golf course? And that part of the problem is on, I think, the research and development end. There's not enough downstream data processing to make sense of the data that's out there. So I don't really blame the users for not wanting to adopt. I think some of it's on our end, not uh, providing that information in a useful way that doesn't cause a lot of trouble. I mean, the superintendent's day is full already. So how do you get them to like data? Well, the only way you get them to like data is to present it in a way that they can understand it fast. And see the results of incorporating it into the decision-making. Exactly, yeah. It's service. I mean, we had clients for 30 years. Same, They all started retiring, and it was because you make the data understandable and clear, and you have to do the work. 
expecting the superintendents to figure out how to apply the data is a little bit difficult. I mean, you got guys like Chris Tridabaugh, you know, and I think he's an outlier because he loves that stuff. And you, well, Jason Haynes, I mean, let's not <laughs> pass up yeah. on Jason. Those guys just love the data, so it's easy for them to adopt it. There's a lot of other guys out there that are adopting some of this data, you know, clipping volume and all this. Well, and I think, you know, and, and, and we have more tools now. I mean, Bill's GreenKeeper app, Playbooks, OnCourse, there's a lot of them out there. But the thing you worked on that actually I really love the most is really pushing us to have metrics for what is a sustainable operation. Yep. You know, that work you did with the metrics for sustainability, the kinds of things a facility should be looking at to see if they're more sustainable. You know, even in the article that was written, Larry, that you and Wendy worked on, where you talk about how the word's been sort of killed. Yeah. First, we're going to tell them to go read that article you had in Golf Course Management a number of years ago. But a lot of people think sustainability has to be this complicated thing. Maybe it can just be about using less stuff. I agree. I think record keeping, I mean, when we're talking about data, I mean, course record keeping is probably the starting point. Know what you're putting on, uh, where and why. <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> then you can start analyzing, can I take something out? Or, you know, what can I reduce? If someone can ask that question, that's pretty much the load road to sustainability. Is you just, you know, uh, if I can just put on less, because that goes on forever. You can always yeah. put on less. <laughs> and it's funny when you laugh around the why, and I'm sure you do. Why? Because sometimes we do it because we've always done it. Absolutely. Yeah. Or, or somebody else is doing it now. Yeah. What are the reasons? It's probably the best question that you can ask. I always had trouble with in the diagnostics and of, you know, people are tell me what they put on. And we got like 20 different things have gone on in the last four weeks. And it's just like, I don't, we got to somehow simplify this. It can't be that complicated to grow the grass the way you want it to. Larry? I thank you so much for taking the time to join me, and I want you to g- give your best to your lovely wife, Wendy. Uh, and I, are you in retirement? Where are you at retirement-wise? I see uh, occasionally pictures of your really bad legs uh, showing up on a beach somewhere. How How's it going, and are you retiring? What's going on with that? Yeah, well, we're, we're sort of semi-retired. We stopped the uh, on-site visits and some of the big projects. Uh, we're now focusing on the, uh, the web business, and something big is going to happen within the next six months in that arena. So Good. keep your eye out. Oh, looking forward to it, Larry. Thanks for taking the time. All righty. Big thanks to my guest today, Dr. Larry Stoll from Pace Turf. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability for 40 years. And Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management John Kiger, graphic design Nicole Rossi, theme music Tucker Rossi, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining.
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.